And then, I'm not always going to make you turn there. Sometimes I might just drop it on you pretty quick, too. Um, and then secondly, um, I'm going to be a little disagreeable this morning. And what I mean by that is um, this is a psalm that has some interesting variation in translation. Uh, you'll notice that I didn't read from the New King James this morning, um, which is typically the psalm, the translation of psalms that I, I use um, when looking at the psalms. And one of the reasons is because of a, a little disagreement with the way a significant passage is translated. And so um, you NAS folks, you were happy this morning. So um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So let's take a look at the final five words in Hebrew of Psalm 23.6. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever is the generic translation. Our first word that comes up here is an active verb that is translated to dwell. Um, this carries with it the idea of sitting, uh, remaining, and dwelling for a specific purpose. Okay, um, It's not a root word, but the root of this word, the root that this word connects to is the idea of, very complicated here, sitting down. Okay, uh, It can apply to a lot of different situations. Most commonly, the idea of sitting down to reign or judge. It's interesting because we oftentimes think that in order to do something active, we have to stand up. Okay, we have to stand up, maybe move arms around if we're Italian. Um, but uh, in order to do something active, we have to stand up. But if you go back to the cultures of the Bible, it was in fact the opposite. When one would prepare to pass judgment and hear cases, one would sit. You know, talks about in the Old Testament when they would go out and sit at the gate of the city to hear cases and discern. Uh, Jesus, when he was about to do his biggest amount of teaching, would sit down. It talks about in scripture that he would sit and begin to teach them. Okay, And so we have this dynamic of sitting down, which perhaps in our culture makes us think, oh, laziness. But as we look at the culture in which scripture was written, no, that was a prelude to, to action and oftentimes significant action. So this concept of what's translated dwelling can apply to sitting down to reign or to judge both significant actions. Also, the idea of to remain or tarry, to stay in a location that's not intended to be a long term stay. We're going to we're going to pause and stay here for a bit. Um, it also, though, does have the idea of to remain in a place or to set up an abode there, to, to remain there for an extended period of time. And it also has in the um, biblical concept of uh, I will dwell with her as my wife to become married and to live together with your spouse. OK, um, what's interesting about the way this word is laid out for us in the Hebrew language in this verse is this specific structure and wording is unique. It's the only place in all of scripture that this word is structured the way that it is in this verse. And so because of that, it leads to a little bit of conflict, not necessarily conflict, healthy discussion or debate about exactly what the author is saying here. A case can be made for the fact that what's not being said here is a long-term concept of I'm going to plant myself in the house of God and there I'm going to stay forever. And the biggest reason for that is that nobody was actually allowed to do that. 
So we could be talking about metaphorical, idealistic language, or if we're being more practical, we could be talking about an expression of a desire to return again and again and again as often as is possible to the place where the presence of God is and where the worship of God takes place. And that's reasonable. So I will dwell, or more fitting, return as often as possible. Our second word is the idea of house, okay? This is very complicated because it means a house. Um, it is, uh, comes from a root word, and the root word is a place of housing. So it's a place where housing takes place, okay? It can apply, simply put, to a dwelling or habitation. It can also reply to the shelter or abode of animals. So it doesn't, you know, doesn't choose favorites, can apply to human beings, can apply to animals. It can also apply to a land, okay? So if you were to house yourself west of the Jordan River, generically talking about the land west of the Jordan River, but there you would find your house, okay? So it can apply to a land, but it can also apply not just to the physical dwelling, not just to the physical structure, but also what is inside of the physical structure. And this is where it gets very interesting, okay? Because it can apply to the household or even to the family of descendants and generations that will come forth, ideally, from that structure, from that household. Now, what's interesting is this word is never used in Scripture to refer to the heavenly dwelling of God. So when the author says that I will dwell in the house of the Lord, he is 100% not talking about the heavenly dwelling of God. He is 100% talking about where God and man will meet here on earth. And like we pointed out, it's used for both the physical place of dwelling and also the household or family that it can contain. And here's where we're going to divert off for the first time. We're going to take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I need to set the context here for you because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we've read up through this point, we haven't, but if you had been, um, David has gone through quite the life story. He was anointed by God as a not even second thought, like non-thought child of Jesse. And yet Samuel said, where is the one that I am to anoint? Bring forth all your sons. Don't leave any behind. David is anointed to be king. Everybody's kind of shocked by that. Saul does not take to that well, and he doesn't transition the throne to David. And so David undergoes uh, what could be best described as a period of testing in his life. Eventually, he does become king. And in doing so, the blessing of God is heavy upon him, and it's heavy upon the people of Israel. And they go to war with their neighbors, and they are very successful. And peace is purchased through that victory. And so at the point in which peace is purchased, David finds himself reflecting on this beautiful house that he personally lives in, but the fact that there has been no beautiful house built for the Ark of the Covenant, no beautiful house built, no temple built where God can be worshipped together by the people. And so he has in his mind to build God a great house. And he asks Nathan the prophet, and Nathan says, sounds good to me, let's do it. But then God speaks to Nathan and corrects him and tells him this in Second Samuel chapter 7. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to pause right there. Thus says the Lord of hosts. There's a lot of ways in which God could introduce himself and refer to himself in the third person. And in this way, he refers to himself as the God of armies. Now, if you paid attention to the reading in Psalm 84, you heard that four times. The God of armies, the Lord of hosts. Okay, it's a reminder. Well, we'll talk about it in a minute. It's a reminder that God is the one who oversees and brings victory. But interesting that that's how he third persons himself in this discussion. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So says God to David. So this concept of house and in this interesting dialogue, this exchange between God and David through the prophet Nathan in Second Samuel for Second Samuel seven shows that David, in his desire to build a house for God, causes God to affirm his covenant to David and instead say, you will not build me a house, but I will build you a house. Same word used in the Hebrew. And the concept is that the house can be both the structure, both the dwelling and that which was built, created, generationed through that structure and dwelling. So back to Psalm 23, verse six, I will dwell or return often to the house of the Lord. Now, when you see the word Lord. And in most translations, it's all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is an indication that you are looking at in Hebrew, the revelation of God's name. This is Yahweh. It's the proper name of God. And what it emphasizes for us, and it's rooted in this concept of he is self-existent. He depends on nothing else, nobody else for his existence. He is self-existent. And he is by nature then eternal. This is the name that God chooses to reveal when he makes covenants with his people. Because again, he swears by himself. And he can swear only by himself because he is the self-existent and eternal one. And anything that's going to have any power 
any word of any power in covenant is, can only be worded in him. So David says, I will return to the house, temporary dwelling at that point, of the Lord, covenant God. And then we get our last two words, which are interesting, because in English, it pushes both of them together and throws at us the concept of forever. And I begin my disagreeability today. Now, in the Hebrew, it's two different words. And depending on how you look at an interlinear uh, translation, it would have the idea of into perpetuity forever. Now, the words in the Hebrew are two words that literally mean length and days. And so what David's simply saying here is that I will return to the house of the Lord for the length of my days. Now, you might be like, wait a second, that's kind of the opposite of forever, because forever is by definition what goes beyond me, what I can't see beyond the vanishing point, if you will. And you are entirely correct. In fact, Hebrew uses that exact concept when communicating the idea of forever. The idea of forever in the Hebrew language is an idea of concealed. The root is the idea of concealed. And when we talk about forever, we talk about what is beyond concealing, what is beyond the vanishing point, beyond the horizon. And when it points that way, it's emphasizing the concept of beyond what we can see forever as it goes. This wording is pretty clear. The author is saying, David is saying, for the rest of my days, for the length of my days, as I have opportunity, I will return and spend time in the house of the Lord. So, all in all, it's not that crazy, but it does set the, it does set the, the stage for us to jump into Psalm 84. So let's go ahead and do that. In Psalm 84, the desire of David's heart to return to the house of the Lord as often as possible for the length of his days is accurately, clearly communicated in 12 simple verses. And as king, David would be able to do that. Go as often as he would like to the place where God is worshipped, the house of the Lord. But I want to stop and remind you of a time in David's kingship where that was taken away from him. Recorded for us in 2 Samuel 15, the son of David, Absalom, through a series of incredible events, usurps his father's throne and drives David out of Israel. It is likely that this psalm, Psalm 84, was penned as a reflection of that time when he was not able to go and be in the presence of God in the house of the Lord. Now, I know some of you are smart and you can read and you see the opening title of Psalm 84, and it says that it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And you're also smart enough to know that David's father is not Korah. And so that simply means that it can't be David who wrote this psalm. Well, here I am being disagreeable. This psalm has every indication of being penned by David. Now, that doesn't mean that scripture is a liar. What it clearly may mean, and this is very interesting as I studied this concept, David originally possibly likely penned this psalm without putting his name explicitly on it. 
And perhaps it was collected later by the Korahites. And perhaps they edited it, because it does appear to be edited as we work our way through. I'll show you that. And they smoothed it out nicely to fit a purpose for which they presented praise and songs and psalms for the people of Israel to participate in the worship process. And so in doing so, edited by the Korahites becomes the title that's placed on the psalm. But let me assure you that this is David through and through. And I'll make my case for that as we go through. I'll be friendly in my disagreeability. We begin by taking a look at this psalm and asking this question, what is it that God reveals about himself in this piece of his word? Well, there are three ways in which God reveals himself, three Hebrew descriptions. The first is the Hebrew word El, singular, or Elohim, plural. This happens every time you see the word God in your translation. Happens eight times in this psalm. Elohim is a recognition of God as the supreme God. It's kind of a loaded word, and it can go a whole lot of ways in translation in Hebrew. But as it's used in this psalm, specifically to refer to God, it is causing God to be recognized as the supreme God, which places him above any and all other pretender gods or men who might set themselves up as God. Secondly, God reveals himself with his covenant name, Yahweh, the self-existent one. We mentioned this already, and this comes about seven times in this passage every time you see the word Lord. Some translations will put all caps. Other translations do not put all capitalized letters. But thirdly, and I mentioned this before, God reveals to himself four times in this passage as the Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts, the God of hosts. The one who commands the armies of heaven and dictates the victory. It's interesting. And if you read it, I wondered why. Because... This happens seven, I'm sorry, there are a total of eight places in scripture in the, in, those, in the Psalms where God is referred to as the Lord of hosts or God of hosts. In seven of those places, it is directly in the context of battle. God being called upon to fight for Israel. God being called upon to fight on behalf of his anointed one. It's David asking God to be protection and to take care of his enemies on his behalf. This is the one place where the context of battle does not happen. Now, you can point and say, well, what about this idea of protection? Yes, but we have all kinds of protection language that does not necessarily involve invoking God as the God of armies. And if so, all four times, I mean, if you look right at verse one, how lovely is your dwelling place, God of armies? That has nothing to do with battle. In fact, we won't even hit the protection idea until we get to the third stanza. So I was wondering why in the world, why, why use this imagery? And that's when Second Samuel chapter 7 came to mind. When God makes the promise to David that there would indeed be a house built for him in his name, it would not, in fact, be David that built it. It would instead be his son And his son would build it because God would indeed first build David a house. God reveals all of that by third personing himself, referring to himself in the third person as the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. 
And so for David, there's something special about that revelation of God as Lord of hosts. It's, it's a sovereignty concept. It's deep, and it pulls David into the reality of the covenant that God had made for him. Again, part of the argument that it was, in fact, David who originally penned these words. Lord of hosts, God of armies, the language doesn't even appear in Scripture until David is on the scene. First time we come across it is in Samuel's writings when David is brought to the throne or prepared to be brought to the throne. So the imagery in the language really kind of has a central connection point to David in Scripture. In essence, what's being said by God to David is this. I gave you victory. I will make you a house. And your son will build me a house by my blessing. God revealed his plan for the temple with the reminder that he was the one that wages war, controls battle, victory, and that his favor and his grace are responsible for the opportunity for us to worship in peace. And David uses the same perspective on God's sovereignty as the commander of hosts when he expresses his joy in Psalm 84 in the house of the Lord. Essentially, we can only come to worship because of the victory. We can only worship because of victory. All right, Psalm 84, how does this psalm break down? So I've got a, hopefully a helpful step-by-step process for you here. There are three distinct sections in Psalm 84, and um, each one of them is nicely separated by a pausing moment of reflection and amen with the Selah concept. Verses 1 through 4 constitute for us what we will call reflection. This is the idea of thinking fondly about the house of God. Verses 5 through 8 form the second section, which we will give the name ascension. And we're giving it that name because this is the process of making the uphill journey to the actual house of God. And then the third section, verses 9 through 12, we will call Revelation, because this is the idea of looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises to David. So let's jump in. Section 1, Reflection, verses 1 through 4. How lovely are your dwelling places, Lord of armies. My soul longs, even yearns for the courtyards of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird has found a house, the swallow a nest, where she may put her young. Your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Now, in this section, we have what's called nostalgic language. Because what's obvious and clear here is that the author is missing being in the house of God. Something has happened that has caused the one writing these words to not be able to be in the house of God. And the author is expressing nostalgic language, expressing fond thoughts and the desire to return. Personal statements about the value of the house of God are what come out in this section. Basically, the idea is this. Number one, the house of God is, according to verse one, both lovely and beloved. I know that the translation that we have in English doesn't capture both concepts, 
But trust me that in the Hebrew rendering, both ideas are there. The house of God, the dwelling place of God, however your scripture translates it, is both lovely and beloved. And I remind you, this is not just the physical setup, because prior to the building of the temple, I don't know exactly how beautiful it was. Remember what took place there? Not just the physical setup, but also the spiritual presence of God that is there and the process of sacrifice-based worship and what it accomplishes, what it does in pointing to God. It is, by David's recollection in verse 1, lovely and beloved. Number two, the house of God, according to verse 2, provides fullness of joy. My soul longed, even yearned for the courtyards of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Right worship in the presence of God affects our soul. The first thing that's mentioned in the verse, which is the idea of our life and breath, that which makes us a living being. Also, our heart, that in fact is our inner man. It's our idea of mind and will. And thirdly, our flesh, which you can guess is a reference to our physical body. David says here, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The idea there is to be overcome and to shout for joy. Fullness of joy provided in the house of the Lord. So it's lovely and beloved, verse 1. It provides fullness of joy, verse 2. And in verse 3, we read that the house of the Lord supplies protection. Now, the way in which this is communicated is both poetic and ironic, because David goes this way. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may put her young. Your altars, Lord of armies, my king and my God identifying this place of protection at the altar of the Lord. It's poetic because even the smallest, most vulnerable, and maybe even insignificant creature, a bird, can there find protection. But it's ironic because of the location. The location of this shelter where the most vulnerable will find protection is the very place where birds on a daily basis were slaughtered as part of the sacrificial system. So this most vulnerable of creatures bird will find protection at the altar of God, the very place where on a daily basis they slaughter and sacrifice and burn birds. If you remember from the Levitical structure, the least expensive of the offerings for those that did not have much to be able to purchase for offering. Now, before you say to me, well, how do you know it's where they did the slaughtering and burning? Could have been the other altar where they offered the incense and things are nice and it's indoors, you know, offers a great place of protection. Uh, no, because the Hebrew wording for this one is the place of slaughter and sacrifice. So no confusion with the altar of incense. This is the altar of sacrifice. So, fourthly, 
So far, we've seen the house of the Lord is lovely and beloved. The house of the Lord provides fullness of joy. The house of the Lord supplies protection. And fourthly, in verse four, the house of the Lord leads to praise. David says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. This is the place where the joy of mankind can be experienced together in the constant praise that rises up to God. He finishes this first section with his first benediction of the psalm, with the simple phraseology of blessed are those who dwell in your house. And indeed, they are blessed because, as we see, they experience the loveliness of worship, fullness of joy in the refreshing of their whole person, the protection of the altar and the ministry of peace. Perhaps another way to say this might be, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Section 2, verses 5 through 8, the ascension. What's interesting here is that the benediction, the second benediction, the benediction of this section, doesn't come at the end in verse 8, but right at the beginning in verse 5. This is interesting and also timely placement, because what's happening here is the picture of going on a journey, a pilgrimage. And when you're about to leave for a journey and a pilgrimage, it's great to be reminded up front that you do not come to God on your own strength. I am not able to worship and stand rightly before him on my own strength. But it is in you and you only, my God, that I realize my strength, the strength to worship freely and in fullness of joy. The second section begins with the second benediction. Blessed is the person whose strength is in you and in whose heart are the roads leading up to Zion. And so the language of this section reflects this benediction. It is a language of confidence, confident language, rooted in faith and pushed by this request, which shows itself in verse eight. O God of armies, Lord God, hear my prayer and listen. Expectantly, David in this section, this ascension section, this pilgrimage up to the house of God, David is praying for two very specific things. In verse 6, David prays very specifically that God would turn the valley of desolation into a place of abundant blessing. Now, he doesn't pray it as a request. He prays it as an expectation. And this is all affirming the concept of faith. But David's prayer here is, Passing through the valley of Bacah, they make it a spring 
the early rain also covers it with blessing. Just a word about this valley of Bacaw. It's not identified. We don't know what it is. The word never shows up in any kind of official language or map or anything that we have from that time period. And there's a lot of debate about how to interpret this. The root of the word Bacaw takes you back to the concept of weeping. So what we know about this valley from the description, that it is a place of dryness, a place of desolation. And in this prayer, David is asking God to replace dryness and desolation with springs of water and showers of blessing. It's interesting that he includes both springs and rain. And here's why. This is water that comes in the form of rain from the outside. But from the perspective of the valley, the spring is water that comes from the inside. And so the idea is this, when God takes the place of dryness and desolation and turns it into a place of abundant blessing, this will happen from the outside as he pours out his blessing, but he will also do work from the inside, which causes there to be an abundance of blessing pouring forth in that place which God has changed. In verse 7, David prays expectantly for a second thing, and that is that he would, that God would cause that which should exhaust us to instead add fresh courage and vigor. In verse 7, David says, they go from strength to strength, they being the pilgrims. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. And the idea here is this. As they travel and make their way from mountain to mountain on their way to God through each valley, what should happen is their strength should be sapped. Their energy should be reduced and they should be limping their way to the finish line, for lack of a better phrase. But instead, David's prayer is that they get stronger along the way. That which should cause them to become ruined will instead lead to them having fresh courage and vigor. This is a request for the supernatural strength and sustaining of God. And, you know, I can't think of two better things to pray for. That God would take where there was dryness and desolation and turn it into a place of blessing by his mercy and his compassion. And that God would bring his supernatural strength and sustenance to uplift those who should be worn out but instead find themselves with renewed strength and energy. The concept is that as I obediently and expectantly journey to worship before you and to be seen by you, you will do your work of replacing desolation with abundant blessing and providing fresh strength and substance through the journey that would otherwise drain me. You know, another way that this could be said, and we've heard this before, is he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, dryness and desolation, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Section three, verses nine through twelve, the section of revelation. This is the final section, and it begins with the second and final request of the psalm. God, who is our shield, look at the face of your anointed. This is heavy language, and it's heavy on multiple levels. On the first level, David is saying, God, do not turn your face away from me. But on the second level, perhaps even not even understood by David in any way, shape or form, he's saying, look upon and fully accept Christ on my behalf. Now, I'm not making that up because what we have here in the Hebrew is actual messianic language. This concept of anointed one, this is the Messiah. Now, it starts with David, obviously, linguistically, but it quickly goes beyond the person of David and the person of the king onto the promised one in whom we have, according to the writing in this section, verse 11, both sun and shield. Now, the Apostle John would recognize this concept of God as sun and shield fulfilled in the anointed one. And say, this is light and life. This is the full revelation and full protection of Christ. In addition, in verse 11, we have both grace and glory. And Paul would recognize this and say that in fulfillment of the anointed one, this is the firstborn of all creation in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell and through whom God reconciled all things to himself. Appropriately, I told you that we didn't turn our back on the first half of Psalm 23, 6. In this section, the section of Revelation, the fulfillment of the anointed one, the Messiah, Christ. In this section, the hounding goodness of God makes its appearance. In verse 10, it says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That word for better is, in fact, the goodness of God. In verse 11, it says, The Lord is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. He withholds no good thing from those who walk with integrity. The good that will not be withheld from those who walk with soundness, in verse 11, is the goodness of God. And finally, the third benediction. The third benediction closes this psalm. Very simply put, Lord of armies, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now, this final benediction supersedes and gives full explanation to the first two. Because here, David gets past the externals of ceremony and worship. And what he does is he reveals the heart of spiritual religion. And that is, this one trusts in God. A life of faith is truly a blessed life because it has focused its desires on the true good 
and draws from God all necessary good. Bow your head with me, please. Father, we thank you for the full revelation of Christ as the anointed one. You have looked upon his face. You have accepted him. And by in doing so, we are right with you. You are our sun and shield. Christ is light and life. From you we obtain grace and glory because the firstborn of all creation is the fullness of God and reconciles all things to himself. Father, forgive us for attitudes of apathy towards worship. Forgive us for dragging ourselves out of bed to come and gather with your people with a heart of reluctance. Remind us that there are those who do not have the opportunity to gather, to be in the presence of brothers and sisters, and that their heart aches for a chance to be in the house of the Lord. Capture us in the journey. Cause our hearts to be filled with delight and anticipation as we make our way to worship together. Remind us that you are a God who replaces dryness and desolation with rivers of blessing. Not just what you pour out upon us, but what you cause to well up inside of us. Be a God of grace and glory. Remind us, Father, that it is only in you that we can find supernatural strength when we are weary beyond description. It is only in you and in your merciful and compassionate hand that we are able to be raised up when we are weary. We are blessed to be in your house. We are blessed to be named by the name of Christ. We are blessed to be covered by the protection, the sun and shield of the anointed one. Would you cause us to capture the concept of a joy that pervades our body, our soul, our heart, our mind, our will? so that like the psalmist, we might declare the greatness of your house and the greatness of your presence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.